Outcast is proud to be the first podcast novel listed at podcalgary.org. Welcome to Outcast, Episode 7. Outcast is a podcast-only novel, written and read by Chris Vitzner. This novel contains mature subject matter, some language, and a lot of violence, so listener discretion is strongly advised. And hello again. Well, <laughs> I hope all of you had a good Christmas and New Year, and I hope 2008 is treating you well so far. Man, I am just fired up today, and I'll give you two reasons why. First off, this little story of mine, this little audio book, just got listed at podcalgary.org, Calgary's podcast directory. It's the first audio book to be listed there, and I gotta say I am thrilled to be the one with the honor of being the first. And second, I got some feedback. Can you believe it? One of you faithful listeners actually took the time to shoot me off an email and talk about the last episode, and from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thanks. I know some folks are listening out there, but it just feels so damn good when someone drops off some feedback, you know? I was thinking of saving it for the end of the show, but I think I'll just go ahead and read it here. Is that cool with everyone? Alright. So, listener Todd writes, I just listened to episode 6 for the second time. And I wanted to write and tell you that it's amazing. I didn't know whether to crumple into a ball and cry or tear my apartment apart. I was that pissed off when those cubs got their throats open. Please keep up the good work and keep updating more regularly, if you can. I'll wait two or three months for the next episode, because episode six was that damn good. But I'd rather not. Thanks again for the amazing story, Todd. Well, Todd, I can't thank you enough. Nor can I describe to you how awesome it felt to get my first email feedback. Now, if I could just convince you guys to use the voicemail line, 206-666-2912. Eh, we all got to start somewhere, right? Well, I've rambled on long enough here. Better buckle in, folks. This is another long one, and I hope you like it. And now, Episode 7 of Outcast. Chapter 7. Control. That's what it's all about. Having it. Wanting it. Craving it. Control is the one thing that seems to drive us. When we have control, particularly of our own lives, we feel invulnerable. We're the center of the universe when we know exactly how our lives are going to turn out from one day to the next. Having that kind of control is great. But when you lose it, Everything changes, doesn't it? Yeah, you might think that's life and continue on with your life. Or you might be cast into a pit of frustration and rage so all-consuming that all that's left of you is a numb shell, oblivious to the outside world. Sometimes we make that frustration heard. The screams of the dying aren't always from being in pain. Sometimes it's a cry of final defiance at the loss of their sense of control. Fear can erupt so quickly when you realize someone or something other than yourself holds your life in their hands that it makes you do or say anything just to gain that control back. Killers and rapists know this and use that kind of fear to fulfill their own sick desires. They dangle that control in front of their victims' faces, taunting them with it until the last possible moment before they finish their game. We call ourselves civilized these days, above the laws of nature which states that only the strong survive. Natural selection, predator and prey, dominance and submission. We say we're above all that, but we're only fooling ourselves. The strong prey on the weak, and the weak hide behind the strong. We fight for dominance every day, in wars and in sport. People fight for their mates, or for the hand of one whom they wish to impress, and would kill if it meant their place in history was secured. No, it doesn't matter how many layers of religion and custom you put over things. At the heart of it all, we're still no better than our feral ancestors, or any other creature for that matter. We kill for food, for dominance, and for control. 
And the only way we stop is when someone stronger stops us. I couldn't remember going back to my dwelling. I had no memory in between kneeling before the grave I dug outside and waking up on my mat before a now dead fire. Absently I moved to pull my shirt tighter around me to stave off the growing chill in the air, only to realize I wasn't wearing it. It was currently bundling up three children whose lives had been taken the night before. That sobering thought made my eyes snap open and the fog lift from my mind. I sat up on the mat and looked around the dwelling. Gray light poured in from the two windows, and I could hear the incessant rain pouring down outside. It seemed to make the air that much colder, and I made for the fireplace as quickly as I could. It didn't take too long before I had a good-sized fire going, dimly aware that I didn't remember taking any wood in the night before either. Strange. Soon my body began to warm up and the shivers stopped but there wasn't a fire hot enough to chase away the cold, empty feeling in my soul. I could still see the Shatlia dragging his blade across her neck. I could still hear the screams begin to rise in volume before Byrick's hold on me knocked me out. With so little to go on, my mind was filling in the blanks with its own pessimistic assumptions of what else happened. I could hear the other Shatlia laughing as the other two servals were murdered. I could hear the cubs crying voices, begging for their mother or father to save them, only to finally be silenced as their life's blood poured out of them. I shut my eyes in an effort to drive the images from my mind, but like any bad thought you want to banish, the harder you try, the more it hangs on. I could feel the anger building again. The frustration at not being able to save them was overwhelming. I wanted revenge more than ever at that point, but not for me. For them. My exile, the Kalpak, none of that seemed important anymore. All that really mattered now was to seek out that particular group of Shatlia and feeding them a beat down like anything they'd ever experienced. I wanted them to be begging for their mothers at the end, pleading for mercy as I held their lives in my hands. I wanted to take control away from them and dangle it before them like some psychotic killer would. The only question was... How? Alone, I knew I wouldn't stand a chance against them. But I was willing to bet a few of those gangbangers I'd met in Junktown would be up for it. It wasn't what I had originally wanted for myself, to become one of them. But if it served my purpose, and I could learn from them, maybe it would be best for me. It wouldn't be that tough to join, I thought. I'd already proven myself strong enough. Ethically, there were probably some things I'd have to work at, but if it came down to a matter of survival, I'm sure I could do whatever it took, even if it meant taking someone else's life. The thought of actually going back to Junktown and finding a gang with which to hook up with both excited and terrified me. To become someone like that was to basically kiss goodbye to any chance at coming home again. Gang life was for life. That much I'd learned before becoming an exile. All the documentaries and news reports my father and grandfather would watch on the telescreen told me that once you were part of a gang, that became your life. You lived and died by the laws of the gang, nothing else. It was a lot like life in the clans. Well, except for the lack of prestige, money, and social status. Life as a gang member didn't seem that much more appealing to me. After all, they preyed on the innocent just like the Shatlia had, so what made them any better? Granted, for them, killing was only done to accomplish a goal, not terrorize a group of already complacent people. Still, I couldn't see myself bashing in someone's skull just to pull a few credits off them to buy a new pair of shoes. It just wasn't me. I felt my heart sink again. From where I was sitting, I had no options. Kids' deaths would go unavenged, and the Kalpak would forever be lost to the clans, all because I'd lost control of my life to the winds of fate. All seemed hopeless. Then, in a heartbeat, everything changed. The door suddenly burst open and on instinct I rolled into a fighting stance. Granted it wasn't much, but it was all I knew. It took my mind a full second to recognize what was standing in the doorway, 
and another second for the fear to start setting in. In the doorway to my dwelling stood what was quite possibly the largest feral tiger I'd ever seen. Its shoulders probably came up as high as my chest, though its height was the last thing on my mind at the time. Its eyes glowed a brilliant, demonic green, and they regarded me with a look that had me beginning to shake. Its mouth was open slightly, giving me a hint at the long, sharp fangs within. I stood transfixed as it slowly padded into my dwelling. My nose crinkled slightly at the smell of wet fur combined with its wild musk. That verdant gaze never left me, even as it took a moment to shake off the excess water it had picked up from the outside. The heat from the fire was all but forgotten, and in its place was a spike of fear so cold, the harshest of winter days seemed warm by comparison. Were it not for the eyes, I would have figured this feral for a wandering beast looking for shelter from the rain. But that glowing gaze made me remember story after story of large ferals who wandered the world. Some believed that these weren't ferals at all, but instead members of an ancient sect, one believed to have started not long after our kind's rise to dominance on this world so many millennia ago. The sect was known as the Lautari, the man-beasts. These folk were a legend known the world over. It was believed that long ago, the Lautari had learned the secret of total body control. Through meditation, discipline, and a martial arts regimen rumored to be deathly strict, they had mastered the art of the shift. An event in which their evolved form is cast away and they assume a form dating back to the earliest times. Maybe it was this ability that led the first Terran visitors to Bengalis to refer to us as Rakshasas. Apparently, a felinoid's ability to assume another shape once carried some mythical significance on Earth. I couldn't possibly describe in mere words what it felt like at that moment. It was fear, wonder, and excitement all at once to think I was possibly looking at a Lautari. In spite of this, though, I maintained a fighting stance. Just because one meets a legend, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Faced with another riddle, are you? That it spoke wasn't what bothered me so much. What really made the hackles on the back of my neck stand straight up was the fact that I recognized the voice. And the scent, now that the overbearing odor of his wet fur had somewhat abated. But now you have no answers, do you? No. There is no easy solution for you now. Who are you? I asked. Why are you here? You've committed a great sin, cub, he growled. For what you did last night, the clans could burn you at the stake. You knew such a travesty would surely invite the wrath of the patrons themselves upon you, yet you still buried those three exiles. I would know why. Be because they deserve some dignity, I said, my voice beginning to waver. Why? he asked. They were exiles, like you. No. They were children. They didn't deserve what happened to them. And do you think by burying them that the patrons would forgive them? He asked. Who are you to judge the actions of their parents? By clan law it was their right to condemn them, regardless of their age. They didn't deserve it. Now I was getting angry. How do you know that? Because all they did was miss their curfew. They told you this? I nodded. And how can you trust their words, hmm? What makes you think they were telling the truth about their exile? Because they screamed when they died, I shouted. They cried for their mother, their father, anyone to save them, and only an innocent would do that. The feral didn't stop pacing, but I sensed a decrease in his aggression towards me. I was breathing hard by this point, nearing my own boiling point. Why was this thing in my dwelling taunting me about this? What did he care about the goings-on of an exile like me? Unless... Unless he was here for more than just conversation. So, he said, you buried them, thinking by such an act they would be somehow vindicated? That was absurd. According to clan law, there were protocols that an exile had to follow before being welcomed back. A mere burial after death did nothing but cause the gravedigger to be in trouble. No, I... Every action requires a reason, 
cub, he said. He stopped pacing and was now sitting before me, keeping himself between me and the door. Action without reason is madness, and you are not mad. So tell me, why did you bury those three children? Funny thing about realizations. Until you put them into words, more often than not the true impact of them never really hits you. That was how it was with me at that moment. For the first time since I'd done it, since I'd defied the law of the patrons, I finally realized why. All the anger, all the growing frustration that had been brewing within me, it finally faded away, leaving behind that one diamond-hard gem of truth behind. And when I spoke it, everything suddenly made perfect sense. Because... Because I failed them. I sunk to my knees and bowed my head, finally taking my gaze away from the feral. I tried to save them, but I couldn't. All my newfound strength and I couldn't even stop some sadistic pakla from murdering three kids. I buried my muzzle in my hands, trying not to break down in front of this creature, but failed miserably. The, the truth, truth finally forms, forms, he said, his voice now gentle. You were inviting the wrath of the patrons upon you. You wanted to be punished. I nodded slowly, now facing the feral once again. His eyes had stopped glowing now, and I could see that they were actually a hazel color. Everything I've ever known is gone, I choked. Nothing makes sense to me anymore. I can't live like this. I rose to my feet and hung my head. If you were sent here to end me, then do so. I won't fight it. You would choose death so willingly? I can't do anything anymore, I said. I can't even think of avenging those cubs or myself. I've alienated myself from just about everyone, clansmen and exile alike, so why even try to carry on? The frail just continued to look at me. A long silence passed between the two of us and I felt myself beginning to shiver. Part of it was from the cold, but part of it was also from the anticipation. I was waiting for that moment, that split second where he would tense up just before leaping at me. My mind and body were going over how it would feel to have his weight crash into me and how his fangs would feel sinking into my neck, drawing out my blood and ending my life. And the more I thought about it, the more the adrenaline was starting to flow. I began wondering what was taking him so long. Was he waiting for me to say something? Or just wanting to draw this out even more? I'd offered him full control over my life, and yet he seemed reluctant to take it. He closed his eyes, and my own beheld something very few eyes had ever seen. Contrary to the myths surrounding the Lautari, there were no glowing auras or sounds of angelic chanting when the shift occurred. All I could hear was ragged breathing, the odd crack of a bone, and the faint meaty sounds as muscles contracted and reshaped. In truth, it looked as macabre as it did fascinating. The notion that he was naked was the furthest thing from my mind when he finally stood up. Wide-eyed, I merely stared at him as he approached me and extended his right hand. My name is Krasa Talak, he said. And I've come here with a proposal. I took his hand and he shook it slowly. Your strength is obvious, he said, running a hand on my left arm. But you lack the precision to properly use that strength. I also sense that you have a good heart, Dallin. You can never kill without conscience, even if your opponent was undeserving. He poked me in the chest. You have potential. And you, of all people, deserve the chance to realize it. Why me? I asked. I could scarcely believe what I was hearing. Because any cub who would try as you have deserves it, he replied. You fought against four armed brigands to protect the Kalpak from their grasp. And failed, I added. And then you defied all rationality by trying to spare three cubs from a grisly fate. And failed again. This was starting to get humiliating. Yes, you failed because you are young, said the tiger. Inexperience is the fatal flaw in youth, Dallin. No child your age could have ever hoped to defeat those thieves. Nor could anyone expect you to take on a handful of elite guardsmen and live. Yet here you are, alive. And that tells me there is more to your destiny than that which you see before you now. If you accept my offer, I will show you the precision you need. 
I will hone your body into a shape and form the likes of which the clans only see in their darkest dreams. You will become one of very few, Dallin. And yours will be the legacy of legend. A peal of thunder sounded outside, as if Latin, the patron of weather, was purposely trying to set the mood. I couldn't believe what Crosso was saying. He wanted me, he was inviting me, to become one of the Lautari. I could learn an art whose origins were lost in the mists of time, and in time pass it along to others. I could become a true predator in the society of ignorant bliss. The very prospect of achieving such a thing made my heart pound. I felt the electricity in the air as my spirits began to lift. The next two words I spoke came out almost as a purr, mainly because the thought of retribution I was going to visit upon those murdering Shatlia was just, oh, so delicious. I accept. I am not your master, I am your teacher. Every task you are assigned from me will serve the purpose of education. I trudged through the rain, shirtless, cold, and getting hungry as I made my way back to Junktown. It never fails to amaze me just how one's spirits can be lifted so high by someone, only to be dropped from said height and come crashing down. He said everything he had me do would be in the interest of education. In one way, I suppose the situation I was in was a good test of endurance or perhaps tolerance of the elements. Either that, or this was all a part of the next thing he said to me after lesson one had been learned. Now, you will return to Junktown and to the Foundation's warehouse. You will apologize to Silas and offer your services to him, whatever that may entail. If he is satisfied with you, he will give you something that will lead you back to me. This is your second lesson, Dallin. Humility. I was positive now that the patrons had spared my life the night before just so they could put me through this. Humility? <laughs> More like humiliation. After my little outburst the night before, it wouldn't have surprised me to find those two guards standing at the doorway, guns leveled at me and telling me to leave. Still, for what going through this could earn me, scarfing down a few slices of humble pie was more than worth it. On the way back to the warehouse, I had a lot of time to think about the events of the past day. Mother and father always said I had a good memory. But for the life of me, I couldn't remember stumbling into my dwelling in the middle of the night. Moreover, I had no recollection of bringing in an armload of wood just so I could get a fire going the next morning. I thought sardonically that maybe some kind of guardian angel was looking out for me. Though I couldn't figure out why. I'd broken one of the most sacred laws of the patrons just the night before. What kind of divine power would find that... amusing? Remember what I said about realization? The logical destination of my last thought nearly made me trip with its impact. Were my stomach not so empty at the time, I would have probably retched for a good hour, thinking that by defying the patrons, I was playing right into the hands of the Dark One, the Lord of the Seven Hells himself. By the time I reached Junktown, I was shivering, and not just from the cold. My mind was now racing with the thought that all that had happened to me all that I'd gone through since the night of the Kumal had all been orchestrated by the Dark One. You have to admit, the plot was pretty typical to any holy parable out there, regardless of your religious beliefs. Nearly every religion in the galaxy has the same story of the devil or demon as being a tempter, one who strikes a bargain with you when you're most vulnerable. In the short term, you get what it is you want, but in the end, your eternal soul is damned. Bengalan religion is no different in that respect than any other. I leaned up against the wall of some old factory building and sighed heavily. Why? Why me? What was so damn special about me that I'd be a target like this? I'd been a good cub up till now. I'd always stayed out of trouble and never crossed mother or father. Why would the patrons see fit to throw me into the wild like this? Religion and rationality began to battle each other in my mind as the rain continued to fall around me. 
My beliefs were screaming that accepting Cross's offer would be akin to selling my soul to the darkness. But the rational side of me claimed that the ways of the Lautari far outdated any writings or philosophy from the patrons. That being said, did the patrons have any right to condemn something so ancient? To that end, weren't the patrons supposed to protect the righteous? Wasn't it their covenant with the clans to keep them safe in the face of all adversity? Where were they for me? Where were they for those three kittens I'd buried the night before? Rationality was quickly gaining ground on religion by this point. Every promise the patrons had made in their texts and testaments had been broken to me. Had Kaon actually been watching me, something would have happened that night a year ago to keep me safe from my attackers. Were he truly caring for what happened to me in this life? He would have intervened before Father had swung that sword. Wouldn't he? Wouldn't the patrons have saved those three children too? Were they that heartless? Or were they even watching? My confusion was short-lived, thanks to that last thought. The constant questioning in my mind was unquieted by the anger growing inside. The questions would be answered in due time, but for the moment, survival was the main priority. I had to make it back to the Foundation and, if necessary, grovel at Silas' feet for forgiveness. For better or for worse, what Krasa had, I needed. No. I wanted. I didn't care if it was sacrilege anymore. As an exile, I was doomed to die alone and worthless. But as a Lautari, I could live and thrive. I let a low, rumbling growl of determination escape my throat as I pushed off from the building and headed towards the warehouse. As before, I kept my eyes, ears, and whiskers trained for any movement or change in the electricity of the air. Thankfully, the rain seemed to be keeping everyone inside this time. I was happy for her. I was glad for that. The last thing I needed was to be cut down when I was so close to some kind of a life for myself. At last, I could see the warehouse ahead of me, and I quickened my pace. I was tired and cold, but knowing the warmth that lay just beyond those doors seemed to re-energize me. Once I'd spotted it, it felt as though getting there took no time at all. And before I knew it, I was pushing that door open and subsequently staring into the barrels of two shotguns. In retrospect, I guess I should have knocked first. Hold it right. Oh. It's you, said the panther. I could tell by the tone in his voice that he was somewhat less than impressed to see me again. However, he was gracious enough to lower his weapon. You to bury more of us? I looked past the two bruisers and noticed Silas standing there. At first I found it odd that he was there, until I noticed he was carrying what looked like two mugs of steaming hot tea. He must have been bringing them out for the guards when I made my somewhat less than impressive entrance. I was just about to smile at him when I noticed the look on his muzzle. He was about as impressed to see me as the other two goons. I... No. I felt like I'd just been caught with my hand in the proverbial cookie jar. With the exception of my mother, no one could make me feel like this with just a look, and Silas was pulling it off masterfully. I was beginning to get the feeling that I wasn't the first exile he'd had to straighten out. I... I came to apologize, I finally said, wishing I was somewhere else. Apologize? he asked. Well, go on then. I'm sorry I acted the way I did, I said. I had no right to be angry at you or anyone else. I looked straight at the old cougar, fighting down the urge to look away from that stern gaze. You were the first person who showed me any kind of kindness or friendship since all this happened, and I'm sorry that I returned that kindness with so much anger. Whatever I can do to make it up to you, name it. He continued to stare at me, his expression not changing in the slightest. I did my best to do the same. I, I genuinely wanted things to be clear between us. But I also knew the reward for regaining that friendship. And for that, I was sure I'd do anything. So, he said after what felt like an eternity, if I told you the only way we'd be square is for you to go in there, stand on a table, and apologize to everyone, you'd do it? I nodded, hopefully not too quickly. You realize you'd be lying though, right? What? You don't get this old without listening, kid, he said. You want to be square with me, and that I believe. But you still hot at the rest of them for doing nothing, right? His expression hadn't changed, and suddenly all the hope, all the anticipation of being trained as a Lautari faded away. 
He knew. He knew I could never apologize to those people in there and truly mean it. At best, it would be a thin apology, designed to placate everyone so that I could carry on with my life. It would be as worthless as some of them actually were. With a sigh, I shook my head. You're right, I said. Either it's too soon, or it'll never happen. Silas, I'm sorry for being angry with you, and I'm sorry I caused such a scene. I mean that. But if us being square means I have to go in there and lie to everyone else, then I truly am sorry because I can't do it. I turned to go, but suddenly felt a hand on my shoulder. I looked back and I saw it belonged to the panther. His gun now hung limply in his other hand, and the expression he bore made him look like he was on the verge of breaking down. It was a bit of a surprise, given that at first he didn't look capable of showing any emotion at all. Where's your shirt? he asked. With them, I said softly. I wrapped them in it before I... The memories of the night before welled up in my mind, and I could recall perfectly wrapping those servals in my tattered shirt. I don't know why, I said. It just seemed... proper. You going soft on us, Nath? the bobcat asked. The panther looked over at the bobcat and snarled. This ain't about going soft, he said. This kid's got more heart than anyone in there. He pointed towards the inner door. No one in there gives a damn about anything outside their own little world. They'd roll you in your sleep if you had what they wanted. But not him. He jerked a thumb back to me. Anyone who'd give the shirt off his back to bury the dead's cool with me. The bobcat looked like he was trying to work his mind over what his partner had said. And given what Nath had said, I remember wondering if he'd perhaps been in the military. Maybe fought in the last Lakayan civil war. It had only been a few years ago. I was only four when it happened, and it lasted for about five years. My sister, make that my former sister, Mikio, was born the day the war ended. Finally, I saw the bobcat nod, and it was the kind of nod that came from a wisdom far deeper than what he'd just processed. I had a feeling these two had some kind of history, or they knew something about each other to which this situation seemed to apply. Either way, when that bobcat looked back at me with a relaxed expression... I finally realized I hadn't been breathing for close to a minute. It's all good, Silas, he said. It's all good. Silas looked at me, and I saw his face soften, too. That smile he'd flashed the day before was back on his muzzle where it seemed to belong. You hungry, son? he asked. As usual, when it came to food, my stomach did the talking for me. He chuckled and gestured with his head towards the inner doors. Come on, he said. Let's get you fixed up. Ever had that feeling when you're going into a situation and you fear the worst? You know, your mind starts playing out the absolute worst case situation and you wind up scaring yourself into thinking something's worse than it already is? That was how I felt when those inner doors were pushed open and I stepped inside. I was fully expecting to be confronted by a handful of people, all of them coming down on me with their own righteous indignation at what I'd said the night before. Yet... Save for a few unsavory glares from some people, my entrance largely went unnoticed. I felt relieved at this. No one stepped up to confront me. And if people were making comments behind my back, I never really noticed. As we made our way through the tables to the back of the food line, I started looking around to see if that female cougar was there. It didn't look like she was, so I paid it no real mind. I figured if anyone was going to step up and tell me off about the night before, it would be her. I was ready for it, though. Having Nath on my side just seemed to add a bit of credibility to what I thought was a pretty thin justification for what I'd done. Once we had our meals, Silas and I took a seat at an empty table. It was another bowl of stew, but the ingredients looked different, and it didn't smell like what it had the night before. Still, it tasted rich, and had the bite of a few strong spices in it. If I did catch a chill from the rain, this was the stuff to surely chase it away. Nath don't say much said Silas. He usually lets his gun do the talking. He put his spoon down and took a very long drink of water. Whew! That stuff's got some burn. Was he a soldier? I asked. Silas looked at me with his head cocked to one side. He just seemed the type, I defended, not wanting to jeopardize what I'd just recently rebuilt here. Yeah, said Silas. Long story short, war messed him up, and that's why he's here now. He shrugged. You'd have to talk to him to know more. 
I let the subject drop after that. I wasn't going to pry into Nath's personal life via someone else. I'd ask him directly if I wanted to know what had actually happened. We ate pretty much in silence after that, which gave me a lot of time to think. I wasn't sure how to broach the subject to Silas, but I was beginning to wonder what it was he was supposed to give me that would lead me to Krasa. Had he accepted my apology? Or was he just being as nice to me as he would to any other exile? You said yesterday that you wanted to work, he finally said as I finished my stew. It wasn't much of a question, more of a statement. That's still true? I nodded. I mean, the food here is great, I said, but it'd be nice to be a little more self-sufficient. You know that to do that, you need a new ID, said Silas. And at best, you'd be looking for work where they prefer backs over brains. The stronger you are, the less questions they ask. I nodded and started running down a list of possible places where Braun trumped brain. I could be a bouncer in a tavern, though the thought of fighting every night like that didn't seem too appealing. Security guard was out, mainly because they need to do a check, and depending on how solid this new ID was, I'd probably be found out. And shot on sight. Spaceport's always looking for folks, said Silas. He was almost reading my mind. Someone's got to move that cargo on and off them ships. Might be the best place to stop. I'll do that, I said. Once I can afford the new ID. Silas began to chuckle. Now it was my turn to stare at him with a cocked head. What is it? I asked. Silas stood and took his tray. Come on, kid. I followed him first to drop our trays off, then down the far wall of the warehouse past the tables, and even past the cots. Some exiles ain't too keen on getting help, he explained as we walked. Most times they just take our opening offer and we never hear from them. I guess they think they ain't even worthy of that. Exiles are supposed to live in shame, according to the patrons, I said. At least, that's what the texts say. Ain't one for religion, are ya? Where were the patrons last night? I countered. Though he didn't stop walking, I saw Silas' head turn just enough that he could look at me with one eye. His muzzle twisted into a slight smirk. <laughs> I think he was enjoying my little bits of rebellion. Or maybe he just liked the idea of someone unwilling to just roll over and die for being exiled. When we got past the cots, we stood before a section of the warehouse that had been curtained off. I hadn't noticed this area the night before, mainly because the curtains were the same color as the walls. Any exile who needs our help, said Silas, turning to me, we do our damnedest to help. Ain't no price for it. Say that you do right by it all. You keep your nose clean and make some of yourself? That's all the payment we need. With that, he drew the curtain back and my eyes widened. There were two long tables there, each of them holding eight computer workstations, each connected to a hub, which were then connected to what looked like a hypernet router. I should explain that the hypernet is Megalus Global Communications and Media System. The term hypernet is really little more than a marketing term, as the communication media over the planet has nothing to do with hyperspace. But entertainment, information, communication... Just about every form of computer-based activity uses the hypernet in some way. And while businesses and homes may have their own subnetworks, they all connect to the hypernet, which is in turn connected to the confederation-wide HICOS. The HICOS is short for Hyperspace Communication System, which actually does route signals from system to system through hyperspace relays. Silas led me over to one of the computers and bid me to sit before it. There was nothing spectacular about the machine. <laughs> My sister's computer was far more elaborate than this one, except this one's monitor was a bit larger, and the touchpad looked far more worn than hers. I tapped the pad to switch off the screensaver and was introduced to what looked like an application form program, like what you'd see on a hypernet employment site. This is Janus, said Silas, tapping the edge of the monitor. ID creation software. This is tied to the city's registry, so when you're done here, you get added to the system. I looked up at him. It's all just questions and answers, kid. After that, he motioned towards the corner, where what looked like a scanner was located. All you gotta do is let the machine scan you, and it's done. What does the scanner do? I asked. Not much, said Silas. Height, weight, blood type. All the things the registry needs to know about you. At that point, I felt fortunate that the registry didn't require Class II cyborgs to register themselves. Class ones had to mainly due to the fact that their augments were visible. But someone like me didn't have to worry about that. 
Once you're done here, he said, go get yourself some clothes, then come find me, all right? I nodded, thanking him before staring back at the monitor. I could see the Janus logo at the top of the screen, then a brief explanation of what the program did, the cyber name of its author, and then the form itself. It's pretty basic to look at, but really, how flashy does one really want something like this? I reached for the keyboard, and then stopped. The full realization of what I was about to do suddenly hit me, and I stopped. This was it, I figured. Once that name was put in, Dallin Calamar was officially off the grid. Dead. And with a new identity, I could go anywhere. Do anything. I could walk away from all of this and make a life for myself. A new life. A good life. The possibilities were endless. I'd have a clean slate. Even if Silas didn't give me what I needed to see Krasa again, this was just as good. If our kind still had tails, I'm sure mine would have been twitching with anticipation. I placed my hands over the keys once more and stared at the screen. The questions were fairly straightforward. First name, surname, birth date, city of birth, city of current residence, the usual stuff. From the looks of it, the current address field had been hard-coded to show one of the many hostels throughout the city. That made sense. A fair number of people, either immigrants or transient workers, often made the hostels their home while they saved up for something better. And in a way, I lived in a hostel too. Just one a little more remote than most. I had to choose a name that would not only fit me, but it had to be one with which I was comfortable. It also had to be one that I could remember easily should anyone address me by it. I started off by typing in my own name, gazing at the five letters. Making an anagram of it was out of the question, but maybe there was something else I could do. I started adding and removing letters slowly, testing each new name in my mind, and ultimately rejecting it. Dallin, Allen, Dalen, Dalen, Dayren, Darren. Hmm. No. Wait. I started the last name I wrote. Darren. It almost felt right, like a connection that would be true if just one side of the equation were tweaked just that much more. Keeping the name in my thoughts, I made one subtle change and beheld what was on the screen. Darian. My new name would be Darian. Perfect. I grinned at the name, even tried it out a few times. Yeah, that name would be perfect for me. I tapped on the confirm button on the screen and the cursor moved to the next field. Surname. Now at the time of one's banishment, they're typically stripped of their surnames, thereby severing any and all ties with their clan. I felt a purr of satisfaction muster in my throat at the mere idea of giving myself a new surname. It would be a slap in the muzzle of clan dogma worthy of the most outspoken opponents of clan society. Given what had happened here the night before, I was more than willing to go through it. But again, though, I had to be careful and choosy in my methods to make sure it fit me properly. I started with my former family name, Calamar. As with my first name, I started adding and removing letters to find the right combination. Calamar, Camrala, Carmel, Carm, Cam, Can... Hmm. Wait. K-A-I-N. Cain. Darian. Cain. It was far enough away from my real name to be believable, yet close enough for me that I could fit into it perfectly. I mumbled the name several times to myself, committing it to memory before confirming it and moving on. I gave myself a winter birth date, which meant, according to the registry, now I was a legal adult. Being a tiger, even at 13, I was filled out enough that very few people would question my age if they looked at me. I knew my real coming of age wasn't that far off, but I wanted to get started on this new life of mine as soon as possible. I needed a job, and no one would hire a minor unless it was for some illegal purpose. The rest of the form filled out fairly easily, and before long I tapped on the submit button using the touchpad. The computer screen flashed a please wait notification, along with some little distracting animation as it processed my input. In spite of how I felt on the inside, there was no real ceremony to this. It was all cold, almost clinical in a way. 
But who would have thought that an action so subtle and innocent could completely change one's life forever? The screen suddenly changed and a new message appeared on it. Please stand in front of the scanner. I quickly rose from my chair and moved to the corner of the room Silas had pointed out earlier. Before the scanning device, the floor was marked with a green circle. I assumed that was where I was supposed to stand. And the moment I stepped on it, the machine seemed to come to life. A scanning wand ran up and down my body rather quickly, and before I knew it, it was done. I returned to my seat and was greeted with the please wait message again. Moments later, the printer at the end of the table whirred to life, and I went to take a look. Now, this wasn't your typical paper printer, but one designed to print information on Nanoflex. Now, everything from telescreens to portable media players used Nanoflex in some way. It could be as thin as paper, or as thick as a hard plastic card, but when properly programmed could store and display any kind of information. Personal ID cards were one of the first applications of Nanoflex, and I can only assume that's what was being printed. Moments later, the card lay in the printer's output tray, and I picked it up. It responded to my touch as though it were alive, and there, staring back at me, was my own face with someone else's name. No. My name. My new name. This was my life now. My new life. My clean slate. Darian Kane, KADA52467. Hypernet. Shanto. Bengalis, was now online. I pocketed the card as I made my way from the computer tables and over to the clothing racks I'd noticed the day before. The two guarding this area looked about as large as Nath and his comrade in the entryway, but they didn't appear armed. Of course, when you're built like a titan, honestly, do you really need a weapon? They nodded and gave me a small smile of welcome, basically giving me permission to browse. It didn't take long for me to pick out some clothes that I liked and actually fit me. Three shirts, two pairs of pants, a pair of working boots, and a black trench coat. There wasn't much else in the way of coats or jackets, so I figured this would have to do for now. I also picked up a knapsack and stuffed the new clothing into it. Well, minus the coat, the boots, and one shirt, before heading back to the tables to find Silas. The cougar smiled widely when he saw me approach him. Well, look at you now, he said. You look like a new man, kid. Feeling better? I nodded. A lot better. Thanks to you, Silas. No need to thank me, he said, as I sat across from him. Can I see your card? I reached into my pocket and pulled it out. I slid it across the table to him and he picked it up. Darian Kane, eh? He looked at the card and then at me. Kinda fits. Good choice. He tapped on the card a few times, but I couldn't see what he was doing. And after a few moments, he put the card down and slid it back to me. All looks good, kid, he said with a smile. Welcome to your new life. When Silas had been fiddling with my ID card, he'd actually programmed into it several places where I could find work, as well as a map to cross his meeting place. It had been in the middle of a fire-gutted building even deeper in Junktown than the Foundation's warehouse. When I'd gotten there, I was convinced I'd taken a wrong turn, but I went in anyway. Sure enough, Cross had been there, and we talked for a couple hours about the training, what it involved, and what my commitment to it would be. For three afternoons a week, I would meet with him, and every second weekend would be a retreat where we would go to the mountains and train. I had to admit I was curious as to why I was to remain in the city. I mean, I would have thought to learn an art like those of the La Tari, one would have to cut themselves off from civilization completely and just focus on being trained. Krasa had actually chuckled at that. He said I'd watched too many movies. The key to someone learning an art as forbidden as that of the Lautari was to blend in with one's surroundings, all but disappear from sight. So long as no one knew, or even suspected, that I was learning the art, then they'd leave me alone and treat me just like everyone else. When you're not perceived as a threat, he'd said, then people tend to be more candid around you. As I headed back towards my dwelling, I slowly began to understand what he was saying. It was all about camouflage. All about being invisible, in a social sense. There was no better way to do this than project the illusion that I led a normal life, all the while keeping alert for any clues as to what became of the Kalpak, or who had attacked me. 
My best non-clan friend, Max, would have called it living the greatest prank ever. Max. Gods. I've been so distracted over the past couple of days that I hadn't stopped to think about my friends. At least those I'd known before all of this happened. Even though Max had no official clan status, I thought sadly that it would be too great a risk for him and his family if I tried to contact him. His mother's fur would go white if she found out her little prodigy was running around with an exile. I thought briefly of my other non-clan friends, and I can't describe how much it hurt knowing I'd never see them again. Yeah, losing Shiana was painful. And losing Byrek, well, what he did to me more than compensated for the loss there. But losing my non-clan friends was hardest of all, mostly because even though clan law didn't apply to them, the social repercussions of being seen with me could be just as bad as if they were all clansmen. I was so lost in thought that I barely noticed when my dwelling came into view. I let out a small smile, relieved to finally be there. As sore as I was from all the walking I'd done, seeing that place gave me the same reaction as seeing the warehouse had earlier. I felt re-energized and quickly made my way to the front door. After stowing my clothes and coat, I headed outside to gather some more firewood for the night. And that's when I heard something. A strange sound filled my ears and I stopped dead in my tracks. It was a disgusting sound, like some alien creature retching somewhere behind the dwelling. Warily, I put down the firewood and walked towards that sound, whiskers extended and full forward and fists clenched. Accompanying the retching sound was that of heavy breathing and the unmistakable whimper of someone in trouble. I rounded the corner of the house and my eyes widened. I could see someone, or something, kneeling down near where I'd buried the children the night before. The ground still looked disturbed, so the grave was easy to spot. Slowly I began to walk towards the figure, and the closer I got, the more I could see them shaking. I could hear an almost childlike whimpering coming from the figure, then watched as it recoiled, made a gurgling sound, and retched again. My nostrils were filled with the rotten, acidy smell of sickness and bile. After the figure stopped, it remained hunched over, and soon the whimpering returned, though it sounded weaker than it had before. I could also hear it mumbling, no, speaking. I couldn't make out what was being said, but it was rhythmic, timed, as though it were a prayer of some sort. What was more shocking was the voice. I recognized it. It was the female cougar from the night before. What was she doing here? To my eternal shame, my first reaction was just to leave her there to her fate. But as I heard her retching, I realized I couldn't possibly do such a thing. Her attitude aside, I wasn't about to let a fellow exile suffer like this. Not after I just buried three of them to give them some dignity. Are you all right? I stuttered trying to use as gentle a tone as possible so she wouldn't be startled. That didn't work, because she rounded on me and made some fearful sound that finally became a hiss of warning. It's all right, I said, putting up my hands in a submissive gesture. Let me help you. Only silence replied as I moved closer. Gods! The smell of that bile was almost overwhelming. Please, I said. Let me help you. I... I... She tried to stand, and promptly her legs buckled. I stepped forward quickly and caught her, and I realized she'd fainted. At first I thought the worst, but my ears could pick up her faint breathing. Quickly I picked her up in my arms and carried her back to the dwelling, where I laid her down on the sila mat and went about preparing a fire. Once the place began to warm up, I looked over at her and felt my heart skip a beat. Around her muzzle were traces of green bile. Green unnatural green. Oh, gods, she'd contracted Theris fever. It's a sickness often associated with the poor, mainly because the treatment for it is so common and inexpensive, not having it is almost unheard of in Shanto. However, as easy as it is to treat, the consequences of not treating it are dire. Vomiting up green bile is only the first stage of the disease. If left untreated, she'd lose all her fur next then be subject to lesions on the skin as the disease broke down her body from the inside out. And finally, she would end up dying a twisted, painful death. 
Thankfully, she had only shown the first symptom of the disease, meaning it was treatable. Grandfather once told me that the best treatment for Theris fever was the leaves of the tokia plant, brewed as an herbal drink. My mind began racing as I tried to recall what that plant looked like, and as I remembered, I also remembered that I'd seen them on the path leading to this place from the estate. I only hoped there would be enough. I set out immediately, and within a few minutes I had enough of the leaves to help. I placed them on the floor of the dwelling before grabbing the bucket and heading for the pool. I filled the bucket with water, and on the way back to the dwelling I picked up a stone for help in crushing some of the leaves. The tea would take several hours to steep, but Grandfather also showed me how to crush the leaves up into a paste that could help start the healing process right away. I set the bucket over the fire and placed the bulk of the leaves in it. Once the water boiled, I would remove it from the fire and let it steep over in the corner. The rest of the leaves, about a handful or so, I began crushing with the rock on the floor, and before long I had the desired paste. I scooped up the paste in my hand and moved towards the cougar. She was still unconscious, so I rolled her onto her side and, after wiping the bile from her muzzle, I smeared the paste on her lips. Unconsciously, her tongue darted out and swept the paste into her mouth before swallowing. Her face wrinkled up momentarily before returning to normal, and I couldn't help but chuckle. Grandfather had said this remedy was a bitter pill to swallow. I did this a few more times with her until all the paste was gone. This would keep her safe through the night, and she could start drinking the tea in the morning. I did my best to make her comfortable, removing her jacket and balling it up for her to use as a pillow. I took a moment to look her over then, and I had to admit, for a sharp-tongued, sarcastic, and overall apathetic bitch, she was fairly easy on the eyes. She had all the right curves in all the right places, and when her muzzle wasn't bearing an expression of contempt or apathy, it actually looked rather gentle. I lay back on the floor, still wearing my trench coat and making a pillow out of my new knapsack. I curled up as close to the fire as I could after stoking it to ensure the place would stay warm through the night. In spite of my exhaustion, I tried to stay awake as long as I could to make sure she was going to be all right through the night. Alas, sleep finally came, and when it did, I was out. I remember my last thoughts being of her as I finally drifted off to sleep, and I silently prayed that in the morning, I wouldn't be burying yet another exile. Thanks for listening to Outcast, a podcast novel written and read by Chris Vincent. For more information on the show, please visit the show's website at outcastnovel.podshow.com. To leave some feedback on the show, please contact me by email at outcastnovel at gmail.com, or you can call the voicemail line at 206-666-2912. Again, that's 206-666-2912. Theme music is provided by Droom and can be found on the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. And again, thanks for listening. Every dead body tells a story. A broken bone. A bruise, a jagged scar. It's all there if you know what to look for. And when you're a medical examiner in a city where magic and technology collide, the stories can get rather odd. But then who am I to complain? I'm just as dead as the rest of them. Two years ago, the vampires turned me, made me one of their own. Now I work with the police to bring down their criminal empire and pay them back for what they've done to me. Even I never guessed what was waiting for us in the shadows of this city. Evil is rising, and someone has to stop it. It's a good thing I'm not afraid of the dark. My name is Morgan Drowling. Welcome to Metamore City. Metamore City is a sci-fi fantasy podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. That's M-E-T-A-M-O-R-C-I-T-Y dot com.
from Japan. Robots who were supposed to be entertaining. Robots who were supposed to be harmless. So much for that. From Mark Yoshimoto Nemkov, award-winning author and creator of Shadow Falls, and number one with a bullet, comes his most off-the-wall audio book yet. Transistor Rodeo. When robots run amok in the city of Los Angeles, something bad is bound to happen. Subscribe today and listen for free at transistorrodeo.podshow.com.